Chapter Two of the Financier by Theodore Dreiser. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two. The growth of young Frank Algernon Cowperwood was through years of what might be called a comfortable and happy family existence. Buttonwood Street, where he spent the first ten years of his life, was a lovely place for a boy to live. It contained mostly small two- and three-story red brick houses with small white marble steps leading up to the front door and thin white marble trimmings outlining the front door and windows. There were trees in the street, plenty of them. The road pavement was of big round cobblestones made bright and clean by the rains, and the sidewalks were of red brick and always damp and cool. In the rear was a yard with trees and grass and sometimes flowers, for the lots were almost always one hundred feet deep, and the house fronts, crowding close to the pavement in the front, left a comfortable space in the rear. The Cowperwoods, father and mother, were not so lean and narrow that they could not enter into the natural tendency to be happy and joyous with their children. And so this family, which increased at the rate of a child every two or three years after Frank's birth until there were four children, was quite an interesting affair when he was ten and they were ready to move into the New Market Street home. Henry Worthington Cowperwood's connections were increased as his position grew more responsible, and gradually he was becoming quite a personage. He already knew a number of the more prosperous merchants who dealt with his bank, and because, as a clerk, his duties necessitated his calling at other banking houses, he had come to be familiar with and favorably known in the Bank of the United States, the Drexels, the Edwards, and others. The brokers knew him, as representing a very sound organization. And while he was not considered brilliant mentally, he was known as a most reliable and trustworthy individual. In this progress of his father, young Cowperwood definitely shared. He was quite often allowed to come to the bank on Saturdays, when he would watch with great interest the death exchange of bills at the brokerage end of the business. He wanted to know where all the types of money came from, why discounts were demanded and received, what the men did with all the money they received. His father, pleased at his interest, was glad to explain so that even at this early age, from ten to fifteen, the boy gained a wide knowledge of the condition of the country financially, what a state bank was and what a national one, what brokers did, what stocks were, why they fluctuated in value. He began to see clearly what was meant by money as a medium of exchange, and how all values were calculated according to one primary value, that of gold. He was a financier by instinct, and all the knowledge that pertained to that great art was as natural to him as the emotions and subtleties of life are to a poet. This medium of exchange, gold, interested him intensely. When his father explained to him how it was mined, he dreamed that he owned a gold mine and waked to wish that he did. He was likewise curious about stocks and bonds, and he learned that some stocks and bonds were not worth the paper they were written on, and that others were worth much more than their face value indicated. 
There, my son, said his father to him one day, you won't often see a bundle of those around this neighborhood. He referred to a series of shares in the British East India Company, deposited as collateral at two-thirds of their face value for a loan of $100,000. A Philadelphia magnate had hypotheticated them for the use of the ready cash. Young Cowperwood looked at them curiously. They don't look like much, do they? he commented. They're worth just four times their face value, said his father, archly. Frank re-examined them. The British East India Company, he read. Ten pounds. That's pretty near fifty dollars. Forty-eight thirty-five, commented his father dryly. Well, if we had a bundle of those, we wouldn't need to work very hard. You'll notice there are scarcely any pin marks on them. They aren't sent around very much. I don't suppose these have ever been used as collateral before. Young Cowperwood gave them back after a time, but not without a keen sense of the vast ramifications of finance. What was the East India Company? What did it do? His father told him. At home also, he listened to considerable talk of financial investment and adventure. He heard, for one thing, of a curious character by the name of Steamberger, a great beef speculator from Virginia, who was attracted to Philadelphia in those days by the hope of large and easy credits. Steamberger, so his father said, was close to Nicholas Biddle, Lardner, and others of the United States Bank, or at least friendly with them, and seemed to be able to obtain from that organization nearly all that he asked for. His operations in the purchase of cattle in Virginia, Ohio, and other states were vast, amounting, in fact, to an entire monopoly of the business of supplying beef to eastern cities. He was a big man, enormous, with a face, his father said, something like that of a pig, and he wore a high beaver hat and a long frock coat which hung loosely about his big chest and stomach. He had managed to force the price of beef up to thirty cents a pound, causing all the retailers and consumers to rebel, and this was what made him so conspicuous. He used to come to the brokerage end of the elder Cowperwood's bank with as much as one hundred thousand or two hundred thousand dollars in twelve months post-notes of the United States Bank, in denomination of one thousand, five thousand, and ten thousand dollars. These he would cash at from 10 to 12 percent under their face value, having previously given the United States Bank his own note at four months for the entire amount. He would take his pay from the third national brokerage counter in packages of Virginia, Ohio, and western Pennsylvania banknotes at par, because he made his disbursements principally in those states. The third national would, in the first place, realize a profit of from 2 to 5 percent on the original transaction, and as it took the Western banknotes at a discount, it also made a profit on those. There was another man his father talked about, one Francis J. Grund, a famous newspaper correspondent and lobbyist at Washington, who possessed the faculty of unearthing secrets of every kind, especially those relating to financial legislation. The secrets of the President and the Cabinet, as well as of the Senate and the House of Representatives, 
seemed to be open to him. Grund had been about, years before, purchasing through one or two brokers large amounts of the various kinds of Texas debt certificates and bonds. The Republic of Texas, in its struggle for independence from Mexico, had issued bonds and certificates in great variety, amounting in value to ten or fifteen million dollars. Later, in connection with the scheme to make Texas a state of the Union, a bill was passed providing a contribution on the part of the United States of five million dollars to be applied to the extinguishment of this old debt. Grund knew of this, and also of the fact that some of this debt, owing to the peculiar conditions of the issue, was to be paid in full, while other portions were to be scaled down, and there was to be a false or prearranged failure to pass the bill at one session, in order to frighten off those outsiders who might have heard and begun to buy the old certificates for profit. He acquainted the Third National Bank with this fact, and of course the information came to Cowperwood as teller. He told his wife about it, and so his son, in this roundabout way, heard it, and his clear, big eyes glistened. He wondered why his father did not take advantage of the situation and buy some Texas certificates for himself. Grun, so his father said, and possibly three or four others, had made over a hundred thousand dollars apiece. It wasn't exactly legitimate, he seemed to think, and yet it was, too. Why shouldn't such inside information be rewarded? Somehow Frank realized that his father was too honest, too cautious, but when he grew up he told himself he was going to be a broker or a financier or a banker and do some of these things. Just at this time there came to the Cowperwoods an uncle who had not previously appeared in the life of the family. He was a brother of Mrs. Cowperwood's, Seneca Davis by name, solid, unctuous, five feet ten in height, with a big, round body, a round, smooth head, rather bald, a clear, ruddy complexion, blue eyes, and what little hair he had of a sandy hue. He was exceedingly well-dressed, according to standards prevailing in those days, indulging in flowered waistcoats, long, light-colored frock coats, and the invariable, for a fairly prosperous man, high hat. Frank was fascinated by him at once. He had been a planter in Cuba and still owned a big ranch there and could tell tales of Cuban life, rebellions, ambuscades, hand-to-hand fighting with machetes on his own plantation, and things of that sort. He brought with him a collection of Indian curries, to say nothing of an independent fortune and several slaves, one named Manuel, a tall, raw-boned black, was his constant attendant, a body-servant, as it were. He shipped raw sugar from his plantation in boatloads to the Southwark wharves in Philadelphia. Frank liked him because he took life in a hearty, jovial way, rather rough and off-hand, for this somewhat quiet and reserved household. "'Why, Nancy Arabella,' he said to Mrs. Cowperwood on arriving one Sunday afternoon, and throwing the household into joyous astonishment at his unexpected and unheralded appearance. You haven't grown an inch. I thought when you married old brother High here that you were going to fatten up like your brother. But look at you. I swear to heaven 
you don't weigh five pounds. And he jounced her up and down by the waist, much to the perturbation of the children, who had never before seen their mother so familiarly handled. Henry Cowperwood was exceedingly interested in and pleased at the arrival of this rather prosperous relative. For twelve years before, when he was married, Seneca Davis had not taken much notice of him. "'Look at these little putty-faced Philadelphians,' he continued. "'They ought to come down to my ranch in Cuba and get tanned up. That would take away this waxy look.' And he pinched the cheek of Anna Adelaide, now five years old. "'I tell you, Henry, you have a rather nice place here.' And he looked at the main room of the rather conventional three-story house with a critical eye. Measuring twenty by twenty-four and finished in imitation cherry with a set of new Sheraton parlor furniture, it presented a quaintly harmonious aspect. Since Henry had become teller, the family had acquired a piano, a decided luxury in those days, brought from Europe, and it was intended that Anna Adelaide, when she was old enough, should learn to play. There were a few uncommon ornaments in the room, a gas chandelier for one thing, a glass bowl with goldfish in it, some rare and highly polished shells, and a marble cupid bearing a basket of flowers. It was summertime. The windows were open, and the trees outside, with their widely extended green branches, were pleasantly visible, shading the brick sidewalk. Uncle Seneca strolled out into the backyard. "'Well, this is pleasant enough,' he observed, noting a large elm, and seeing that the yard was partially paved with brick and enclosed within brick walls, up the sides of which vines were climbing. "'Where's your hammock? Don't you string a hammock here in the summer? Down on my veranda, at San Pedro, I have six or seven. "'We hadn't thought of putting one up because of the neighbors, but it would be nice,' agreed Mrs. Cowperwood. Henry will have to get one. I have two or three in my trunks over at the hotel. My niggers make them down there. I'll send Manuel over with them in the morning. He plucked at the vines, tweaked Edward's ear, told Joseph, the second boy, he would bring him an Indian tomahawk, and went back into the house. This is the lad that interests me, he said after a time, laying a hand on the shoulder of Frank. What did you name him in full, Henry? Frank Algernon. Well, you might have named him after me. There's something to this boy. How would you like to come down to Cuba and be a planter, my boy? I'm not so sure that I'd like to, replied the eldest. Well, that's straight-spoken. What have you against it? Nothing, except that I don't know anything about it. What do you know? The boy smiled wisely. Not very much, I guess. Well, what are you interested in? money. Ah, what's bread in the bone, huh? Get something of that from your father, huh? Well, that's a good trait, and spoken like a man, too. We'll hear more about that later. Nancy, you're breeding a financier here, I think. He talks like one. He looked at Frank carefully now. There was real force in that sturdy young body, no doubt of it. Those large, clear gray eyes were full of intelligence, they indicated much and revealed nothing. A smart boy, he said to Henry, his brother-in-law. I like his get-up. You have a bright family. 
Henry Cowperwood smiled dryly. This man, if he liked Frank, might do much for the boy. He might eventually leave him some of his fortune. He was wealthy and single. Uncle Seneca became a frequent visitor to the house, he and his Negro bodyguard, Manuel, who spoke both English and Spanish, much to the astonishment of the children, and he took an increasing interest in Frank. "'When that boy gets old enough to find out what he wants to do, I think I'll help him to do it,' he observed to his sister one day, and she told him she was very grateful. He talked to Frank about his studies, and found that he cared little for books, or most of the study he was compelled to pursue. Grammar was an abomination, literature silly, Latin was of no use, history, well, it was fairly interesting. I like bookkeeping and arithmetic, he observed. I want to get out and get to work, though. That's what I want to do. You're pretty young, my son, observed his uncle. You're only how old now? Fourteen? Thirteen. Well, you can't leave school much before sixteen. You'll do better if you stay until seventeen or eighteen. It can't do you any harm. You won't be a boy again. I don't want to be a boy. I want to get to work. Don't go too fast, son. You'll be a man soon enough. You want to be a banker, do you? Yes, sir. Well, when the time comes, if everything is all right, and you've behaved yourself and you still want to, I'll help you get a start in business. If I were you and were going to be a banker, I'd first spend a year or so in some good grain and commission house. There's good training to be had there. You'll learn a lot that you ought to know. And, meantime, keep your health and learn all you can. Wherever I am, you let me know, and I'll write and find out how you've been conducting yourself. He gave the boy a ten-dollar gold piece with which to start a bank account. And not strange to say, he liked the whole Cowperwood household much better for this dynamic, self-sufficient, sterling youth who was an integral part of it. End of chapter 2